This is Paris. This is Chuck T. This is Flavor Flay, boy. And you're in tune to 91.1 FM, WGDR. Plainfield. We're going to change the system. Think about it. That's the way it was, and that's the way it is, and it's always changing, and it is always the same. How's that for psychedelic? We are all seekers after truth. This, 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 this is a special magic. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. I am a traveler. A wanderer. It's always changing and it is always the same. The same. Yo, 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 take it out. The world is listening. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. On the show today, Adrienne Marie Brown. Adrienne Marie Brown is an activist, organizer, workshop facilitator, and the author of a wonderful book on social activism titled Emergent Strategy, 
Shaping Change and Changing Worlds. Adrienne Marie Brown is also a wonderful speaker, and we're going to hear two presentations from her on the show today. The first presentation is from the Compassionate Communities Conference in 2017. Before I start anything, I want you to all just actually look around, really look around and take in that in this moment of real hardship and oppression and trauma, that y'all are choosing a different way. I'd like to open with Octavia's words as sort of a grounding meditation. Octavia Butler was a black science fiction writer. She wrote 12 novels and a collection of short stories, and basically she's one of the core pieces of the lineage of everything I do with my whole life. What I want you to do is just get yourself centered and just notice how you are in your body and not judging any of it, just being with what is. Like, how am I surviving right now? How's my body self surviving? How's my heart self surviving? Am I in touch with, oh, here's my grief, here's my joy, it's all, it's all happening. And into that Octavia offers all that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. So again, open up your eyes and look around at all these divine creatures around you who are wielding change. And imagine that someone at your table might be the one who breaks it open for everyone else. And you don't know who it is. You can't tell by looking. You might not even be able to tell by being friends with them. You know, like, oh, I didn't know you were a genius. So I'm really honored to be with you all today. And right now we're in this upheaval of all the harms. So many of the harms are just getting exposed and unveiled. I said something last year that things are not getting worse, they're getting uncovered. And that we must hold each other tight and continue to pull back the veil. And, you know, people are like, no, it's getting worse. It feels worse. And for me, I'm like, I think if it feels worse, that's a sign of how covered it was for you, right? This is why I do science fiction writing, and I always talk about the distinction between utopia and dystopia, and that I'm not trying to create utopias because they always sit on top of dystopias for someone. But... I'm trying to create something that's beyond a utopian or dystopian condition, and it means choosing all of us, and it means that we all do harm. And in this moment, with things getting uncovered, what we would rather be able to say is, you did harm, and I'm good, right? But the only people I've met who have it are in the one-month-old range. <laughs> but what our recent socialization is has been exile, or encage people, try to put them away from us and say that they don't deserve to be a part of society. They don't belong to us because we don't do harm. Those people do harm. And it allows us to individuate every single harm instead of stepping back and being able to see, oh, there's this massive system and we're participating in it and we're complicit in it. This past year, how many people after the election were like, I'm either moving or I'm not going to pay my taxes or this system. And then how many people are still here, paid their taxes, and so far have not engaged the system? Yeah. So I want to say this because I'm like, I feel very much that anyone who's living in this country paying taxes in any way is very complicit in 
the most massive harms that are happening on the planet. And then inside of that, there's interpersonal harms, there's organizational harms, there's all this other stuff. When we're such harmful beings, how do we have compassion and love for each other and for ourselves? That's what I want to explore. So emergent strategy is my best offer into that void of overwhelming harmfulness of the human species. And it comes from a lot of places, but one of them is Octavia Butler. And she wrote about this belief system called Earthseed. And the Earthseed concept of visit, the destiny of human beings is to take root amongst the stars. That the experience of being on this planet is actually kind of a growing ground, almost like a womb, where we get all of our parts and we generate our capacities so that we can go off into the stars. Now, there's a lot of problems with this manifest destiny, right? Is it involves some colonialism. At the end of it, she actually names the ship the Christopher Columbus because she problematizes it, right? She's like, oh, wouldn't it be so great to get off this planet full of messy people, but you'd still be in a messy people situation and taking these messy people elsewhere. In the system, though, one of the things she talks about is that we have to get in right relationship with change and that humans hate getting in right relationship with change. We want to set it up and then have it stay that way. But her system was like, that's not how the natural world works. That's not how our universe works. What we've come into is a system that is actually changing all the time. And until we get in right relationship with those changes, we're not going to be in right relationship with ourselves. And we won't be able to be in right relationship with each other. We'll be disappointed by each other. We'll be harmed by each other because people are going to be changing all the time. And I remember being so moved by this the first time I read it, which was back in like high school. And it turned my world upside down, this idea that actually everything is changing all the time and you can't control it. And you're not ever going to be in control of it. But you can shape it. If you actually take responsibility for the world that you're a part of, you can actually shape it. And in that shaping, we can do collectively. So I was like, boom, collective shaping change. Got it. That's my life path. It wasn't quite that clear. I was 19. So I'm going to read you something from Octavia that I feel is emergent strategy in a nutshell. So here's what it says. All successful life is adaptable, opportunistic, tenacious, interconnected, and fecund. Understand this, use it, shape God. So I was reading Octavia Butler's work over and over again, and I thought that it was so interesting to me because it was young black female protagonist. And as you may have seen my sweatshirt today, It says, I'm rooting for everybody black. And I was like, yeah. So I wanted to tap into an experience of blackness that was not just about the oppression and the harm and the trauma. I don't want to feel like I'm bonded to black people because of trauma. I want to feel like, oh, I'm bonded because of something else. I'm bonded and I'm rooting for blackness in the world as another force, as a beautiful force, as an equal force to any other force. So I got excited when I saw all these young black protagonists in Octavia's books. But then as I kept reading it, she was tapping into something that goes deeper than any identity. She was tapping into a way of leading, and she sums it all up. And so the way it's translated into the work is it's fractal, nonlinear, decentralized, adaptive, resilient, and it creates more possibilities. And I'm going to just speak about each of those briefly. So adaptable that you can actually adapt with change, not purely reactive. We can always be reactive, just reacting to whatever happens with no clear intention of where we want to go. React yourself all the way through your life. So adaptive means we adapt with intention. 
We're trying to get somewhere. When birds are flocking and they're flying south, if a storm knocks them off by 50 miles or something, they're not just like, you know what, f*** it. I, I, can't, I don't feel like going to Mexico anymore. I, just, I think we should just land here in Delaware and just like, you know. They're like, no, we just need to get back on our path. And they feel it inside them. And so when I hear that, it makes me think, what is it that we feel inside us? What is it so compelling that it brings out the best of us, that it helps us go beyond what we're capable of? So adaptation with intention, I think our intention is around love, but I'll get to that later. But how do we make sure that we're all constantly adapting to change? And the faster we can let go of like, well, I thought it was going to be this way. The faster we can let go of that and be like, it's this way. And how can I still get to justice and liberation and transformation this way? So that's the first piece. Fractal, fractal is basically all about scale. That the same patterns in the world, from the smallest to the largest scale, you see the repetition of these patterns. Spirals in the waves, spirals on our fingertips, spirals of the shape of the very galaxy that we're a part of. We humans are fractals, right? We're little cells moving the whole body of our humanity all the time. And some of us are toxic cells. That doesn't mean we can't heal, regenerate, figure it out. But fractal says, if we can't do this on the small scale, it's not going to happen on the large scale. So when we talk about the experiment of democracy, for instance, I often will ask people, and actually I'll ask you now, how many people here would say your immediate family functions as a, a really functional democracy? Yeah? Raise your hand, be proud. You're like, we vote, we make decisions, the budget is transparent, we are functioning. All right? How many people, if you add your extended family, so your racist uncle, your grandmother, your nieces, now you still, right, do in democracy? How many people are you on your block? Right? No? I've lost you all. No? We've got a blocker. One block. Okay. What about in your whole community? Functional democratic process in your community. So I say this to say that we look at the federal level and we're like, this democracy is not working. They don't know how to do government. And it's like, no, none of us do, right? We actually haven't spent our time doing government. We've spent our time doing capitalism and domination. So we've gotten really good at those things and then we sort of like flirt with democracy on the side. But actually who we elect is like whoever lies the best to us, right? We don't pay attention to actions that much. We don't actually track like, well, what did you actually do? What do we actually want done? So small d democracy, I think about that as one of the main places where we need to practice our fractal thing. If we want it to happen on a large scale, we have to do it on a small scale. Transformative justice is also one of these. If you can't forgive your partner for putting the toilet paper roll on the wrong way, how are we supposed to build this up to a level that our whole society can do this? Right? Nonlinear and iterative is the third one, nonlinear and iterative. So things don't happen in a linear way. We try to make them happen that way, and one of the ways we do that is we make five-year strategic plans. We're like, I figured it all out. We're going to do this, 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 and that. Here's the opportunities and the challenges of this moment, and based off of that, we're going to say how the whole future is going to be. We have a plan, right? And then the plan doesn't work. Often, I work as a facilitator. For about 20 years, I've been doing facilitation for social justice work. So that's what I do. That's why I'm talking to you now, is that I've done that work, and that work showed me that a lot of people would be like, we have a strategic plan. Remember? And slowly people would forget, and then things would be nonlinear again like they normally are. And then they would come back like five years later and be like, let's do another strategic plan. Right? So 
trying to get groups to let go of thinking that things are going to go linearly and get in tune with what really matters to us, our strategic intentions that need to be realized in every action that we do. What are the strategic intentions that will guide all of our work? So that we can be nonlinear, but also so that we can be iterative. Iterative means we're practicing, right? We're always practicing things. And what are some of the things you practice now that you would say are not aligned with your values? You can shout them out. Are you too ashamed? <laughs> I'll just say this. I watch The Bachelorette. I practice it. Like, I watch it, and I know it's bad, and I know I don't agree with the values of it. The Walking Dead. So, television. <laughs> right? Like, we know that we should be spending that precious, miraculous life energy, you know, feeding the hungry, but instead we're like, I need to sit on my couch and just watch other people's messy lives for a couple of hours or three days, you know, paying federal taxes for some people might be another one of those. What are other practices you're in? Shopping. Just consuming, consuming, consuming this culture, right? So iterative practice says that if you want to be something different, you have to practice different things because you become what you do over and over and over again. And I think, for instance, one of the things I talk about often in the, in the process of justice or trying to get to justice is that one of the major practices in, is that we lie all the time. Like we lie at small scale levels and large scale levels. And we do it to make each other comfortable, right? We're like, I'm going to be polite. I don't want to disrupt anything. And then we end up in genocidal conditions for our people over and over again, either enacting it or being enacted upon because we're too polite to disrupt the conditions. And then when people do, so I do a lot of work with Black Lives Matter and Movement for Black Lives. And it's so fascinating to see people be like, why do you have to be so loud? and disruptive, Bernie Sanders was talking. You know, like these things happen. You know, real things happen, right? Where people are like, why are you being like this? And then what doesn't get noticed is like, now we're having a conversation around the safety and well-being of black people in this country that black people have been trying to get politely for the last 40 years, right? So there's this question of like, what do we practice? How do we practice interrupting? I was like, if everybody in this room interrupted racism every single time they saw it, like, what would be the wave of that? Would we still need to do these disruptive wake-up actions, right? So iteration, iteration, iteration. Then we talk about resilience. And I live in Detroit, love Detroit. And one of the things I talk about in Detroit is that resilience has been used kind of against us. It's like, oh, you're so resilient. You don't need heat. You know, you guys just bounce back. Like, we'll just take this water. It's fine, because these are resilient people. And so you're just like, oh, the harm keeps piling up, because you're like, we, we're strong. We survive. So I want to reframe or reclaim resilience. I really feel like resilience is our inheritance that we can recover from harm. There were a species that, that we're on a planet that recovers from harm, and that we're of that. So my dad has chronic back pain, and I think a lot of chronic pain is actually emotional. The human body when harm happens, has like a six-week to six-month recovery time for most harm. So if something continues to act up, you know, like his lower back, I'm like, what is the story or what's being held in there that needs to be resolved, that needs to be let out, that needs to recover? I really think that so much of the chronic illness we're dealing with now is that we live in a society that is actually moving too fast and doing too much, where we are required to take in so much harm with no tools for how to navigate it, how to choose, like, where can I actually be of use? And so when that fire hydrant gets opened up and it's like, here's all the harms today, 
there's hurricanes, there's earthquakes, these people are at war, these people are being genocided, this person just got shot. All of this is just yesterday. That's just like one day of the human experience now. And we have the internet, so you can get the pictures, the sounds, you can see every single harm that has happened. And then maybe you'll be told you can sign a petition to help this, or maybe you can send a package, but it's not enough. Like what we're able to do in response to the harm that we're seeing is not nearly enough. So it ends up overwhelming the system. So the place that I enter this now is in transformative justice. Is how do we actually say, what are the places where we can actually transform the conditions at the root? Where are the places where we can get our hands dirty, get in there, be transformed in this process of the work, and actually create transformation? It's meant that I've turned a lot of the news off. And I've always had a real feeling where like, I have to be the most well-informed person at the table, like I always have to know all the things, and I've had to let that go. I can't take in all the things. I'm working very, very deeply on a few things, and I'm gonna let myself be transformed by and transform those things, and figure out how to transform them outside of the power of the state, because I don't trust the state. Because as we just all saw, no one knows how to do democracy, much less transform justice at the state level. So what do we do? Okay. The last piece of it is creates more possibilities. So strategy, you know, when I was choosing to use the word strategy, it was a risk because strategy is a military term. It means a plan of action towards a goal. But people use it like it means something different. Like it means made of crystal brilliance. You know, so when people say like that person's so strategic, you know, what they're saying is like that person's better than you at thinking. So we're going to listen to what they said. And a lot of times that's tied into stuff, right? Men are more strategic. White people are more strategic. Consultants that are men and white people are the most strategic, right? So then you end up being like, oh, how do I find a strategic thinker to guide me, right? And trying to break out of that way of thinking that also that strategy means narrowing down to one way and trying to eliminate the complexity, to eliminate all the variance and the diversity, right? So. A lot of times how we're taught to be strategic is actually anti-nature or anti-natural. Then when you look at the natural operating systems of the world, it's all these fecund ecosystems that are incredibly biodiverse, and those are the healthiest, right? Those are the most likely to survive apocalyptic conditions. I'm like, humans should tap into that stream. That feels like it's working. Those creatures that try to say, I will dominate, those are the ones that are going extinct, mostly because of our influence but they're unable to adapt to what we're doing. All these smaller adaptive biodiverse creatures that live on each other, bacteria, viruses, gnats, flies, roaches, they're super resilient, they're doing great. They're all like creating more possibilities. They're like, I can live anywhere. I can live in your walls, I don't care, right? So I keep thinking of those little creatures and being like, how do we? So anything on this planet that's surviving, I'm like, we need to give it a respectful examination, right? And those things that are surviving are surviving because they learn to collaborate in some way or they surrender to collaboration. And not just collaborate in the, I think the funder sense of it is like, we're collaborating, like we both put our names on the pamphlet. But collaboration, like I just had an idea and I'm gonna let you into that idea as soon as possible so that we can be ideating together. That we're co-creating. And that the more people who co-create something, the more inclusive it actually is of all of us. So if you're in a space where there's no one with a wheelchair at the table, then often those spaces end up being like less accessible for people with wheelchairs, right? It doesn't mean there has to be someone with a wheelchair at the table, but it really increases the likelihood that it's gonna be accessible if there's people there who are like, I know what you need to think about. As a woman, I know what you need to think about. As a queer person, I know what you need to think about, right? 
So creating more possibilities means inviting more people into the creation process and then surrendering your right way. You're not right. None of us are right. If we were right, we would be free, right? We're figuring it out. We're listening to Adrienne Marie Brown. Adrienne Marie Brown is an activist, organizer, and the author of a wonderful book on social activism titled Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change and Changing Worlds. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. Okay, so I just want to say, when I do these talks, there's some stuff that I try to always share, like the basics of emergent strategy, and then there's some stuff that I leave up to, like, what's happening in the world right now. And I hope that y'all are going to be willing to do some play with each other, because I don't want to just talk, talk, talk at you. I have some stuff that I'd like you to do and build with each other. Are you down to do that? Okay, so I'm going to share probably about, oh, that was a lot of enthusiasm back there. I'm excited now. I'm more excited than I was. So I'm going to share like 10 more minutes of thoughts to prep for that. But as you're listening, I want you to be thinking like, what of this is resonating with me? What of this is challenging me? Because that's going to come out in what you're going to do with each other. So a couple of pieces that I wrote down last night. Last night when I landed, I was like, oh, I have to say this and I have to say this. One is letting go of hierarchy. It's like in order to choose all of us, we have to kind of relinquish our commitment to hierarchy. Octavia Butler taught us that the fatal flaw of our species is intelligence plus hierarchy, that we use all the reasoning power and the intelligence that we have to create dominant structures over and over again. And that if we are going to survive beyond this moment, we're going to have to learn to let go of those. And so I've been thinking, like, I'm pretty good at that. Like, I'm not in a bunch of hierarchies. But then I was like, no, but the hierarchy that I have had a hard time relinquishing is moral superiority. I really love being on a high horse. I do. I, horses are beautiful. Horses are beautiful. But I also really love being like, oh, no, I'm right. I've got this. I figured this out. And one of the things that's helped me start to relinquish that is building an intersectional analysis, right? So when I just think of myself in one of the core lines of my oppression, for instance, if I only think of myself as black, then I can get on a very high horse, right? I'm like, I have been victimized. You are all wrong for victimizing me, and here's what happens next. And letting go of that moral superiority for me has meant being able to say, like, I'm intersectional. I'm black, but I'm also a woman. I'm also queer. I'm also amazingly thick-bodied. I mean, this body is incredible. And it's taken me a long time to know it was incredible, but, like, I've claimed it, right? I'm like, no, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> um, and I'm also college educated. I've also traveled around the entire world. I also get paid to do exactly what I love doing. So there's places in which I get harmed and there's places in which I cause harm. And the sooner I can re recognize my own complexity and my own contradictions, it allows me to step down off of that horse and be like, oh, we're all in this. And I think everyone needs to make those little maps for themselves. These are the ways that I currently benefit from the oppressions of society, and these are the ways that I'm impacted by them. And that no one has everything only on one side or the other side, right? Everyone has some mixture of both. And again, this is like, how do I see myself whole? Yeah. Um, 
it requires a lot of trust in order to do this collaborative work, in order to heal and move forward. And after harm, that's the number one thing that's been broken, right? Trust in yourself. You know, I know as someone who's a survivor of sexual assault that like the first questions that I had for myself, and even now in this Me Too moment, other things have been unveiling. I'm like, oh, that was also a thing that, what the f you know, like all this has been happening. And the first thing is like, how can I trust myself? I let myself be in that situation, even though I was a child. Or I let myself be in that situation, even though I had no idea, right? How can I trust myself? How can I trust anyone else? Is everyone else trying to harm me? You start to see the world this way. And now, I work in the black organizing spaces. There's this new, you know, FBI has said there's a black identity extremist work, and there's all these things being planted to make us not trust each other, harmful things being thrown into the community. Harm always happens on multiple levels, right? So it's like, how do we actually start to regenerate and rebuild trust, even though all the evidence says we probably shouldn't, right? That's what it means to be a human being trying to create change right now. And it means we have to be willing to look past the surface actions, because a lot of times when people have done harm, they want to point to like, here's something I can do in one day. I'll apologize, and I'll come out as gay, if you're Kevin Spacey, right? Or, right? It's just like, here's the immediate, re I mean, like, you know, for me, I keep looking at them like, yeah, that, of course, that was not a good response, obviously. And I'm like, there's all these people making really bad responses right now to these accusations that are coming in, because they're not actually taking time to move through a transformative justice process. They're not actually taking time to, like, sit down with the person that they harmed or the 60 people that they harmed and say, what happened? What did I do? Why did I do it? Let me examine this. Where's the harm in me? All of that process. We're skipping over that. We're just looking for the surface level actions. In your own work, in your own organizations, you have to resist this too. Because of the way our funding cycles work, how many of you are doing like nonprofit work explicitly, right? So because of the way these funding cycles work, it's like if a problem comes up, I need to finish handling this by the next time I've got to apply for a grant because this can't be like a problem, right? That doesn't create conditions that are conducive to healing and transformation. Right? So there's three things I wanted to offer as practices I've been using as a facilitator and practices I've been using as a human being that I find really help to increase the capacity for transformative justice and transformative spaces. One, I learned as a doula. You know what a doula is? Yeah? So I work with people who are like having babies to come out of their bodies. And I don't know if I'm ever going to do it, <laughs> right? I, the more I see it, I'm like, what a miracle. Wow, that was terrifyingly awesome. You know, I mean, I think it's the best, and it's also like, I don't know if I can do that. But I have these moments of uh, whenever I'm in the doula mode where I'm like, oh, engage tension, don't indulge drama. Engage tension, don't indulge drama. Tension is great. Tension means things are changing. New life is coming. The miracle is on the way, right? You have to bear down. You've got to breathe through it. But, like, you don't want to stop. And there's almost always a moment in the birthing experience when the person who's giving birth looks at me or looks at the midwife or the doctor, whoever else is there. I can't do this. Actually, I'm going to go home now. I'm sorry that I um, took everyone's time, but actually this is not working for me right now, and I'm not doing it, right? And in that moment, you know, being present with that person, like, we're going to engage this tension. We're actually almost there. Something impossible is about to happen, and your body knows what to do. And if it doesn't know what to do, we got you. But we're gonna, we got to move forward. Back is not an option, right? 
So holding that principle when we're organizing people, when we're creating mediation processes for folks, it's like actually we want to engage the tension and not run from it, but don't indulge drama, right? So one of my early times being a doula, I'm working with the young mother who was having the baby, and her partner shows up, and he is high as a kite because he is 18, and he is out of his league with all this, and he's, you know, I don't know what to do. So getting really high seemed to make sense to him, in that moment, but it didn't make sense to her, right? She was like, ah! you know, like it was just like a huge sound of rage that came out of her, and I was like, what are we gonna do right now? And I was like, that's drama. What he's bringing right now is a little bit of drama. He didn't mean to, right? He was just like, I'm trying to get through this experience. So we took him, and we're like, you're gonna go sit in the waiting room and just let it come down, drink some water, and we're going to keep working and pushing in here, and then you're going to come back in. And he totally got it together. He came back in, and we engaged tension together, right? And I think about that so often, that experience, because both of them were, like, willing to keep showing up. She was like, okay, you can come back in. Are you, are you good? Okay, you come back in, right? She had to be willing in that moment to say, okay, you can come in. But we all had to be about engaging tension. And how many times in our organizational work and our healing work do we run away from the tension, or do we turn away from the tension? It's too much. I don't want to deal with it right now. How do we instead get about engaging it? So you got that one? Engage tension. Don't indulge drama. A second one is engaging in principled struggle, right? This is connected. So I think a lot of times we love engaging in struggle, critiquing others, critiquing everyone, right? Telling everyone. I, I talk about this that most of our college experiences are actually about training us in deconstruction, right? We get trained. Here's how you look at something and see what's wrong with it and you know the lineage of what's wrong with it, right? It's a, this is a mess as far back as I can see. What we don't learn is how do we construct, how do we build, how do we co-create, how do we generate. Principal struggle to me is one of the ways that we say, I am in a struggle with you, but I'm not in a struggle with you because I want to tear you down. I'm in a struggle with you because I want to build you up. I'm in a struggle with you because I want us to grow together. I learned this from my comrade in Tanya Lee, who's at Left Roots, does incredible work as a facilitator and as a teacher. But it talks about how do you struggle for the sake of growth rather than struggling for the sake of tearing things apart? How do you recognize what are the right containers in which to do that healing? I always say when I sit down to start a mediation, I'm like, do both of you actually want to see something change here? Because if you don't, this is not actually that great of an idea, right? We can create boundaries without doing a whole mediation process. Mediation should be about, like, we want to move forward somehow. We want some clarity here. And I always talk about that. Is this the right container to even be doing that healing in? And then how do you not go off and have side conversations, right? Principal struggle happens when it's all let's look at each other face to face and have the conversation. Not we had one conversation that was all a bunch of bullshit, and then we all went out in the hallway and we were like, yo, that's why this shit never works because so-and-so, right? And we love doing this, right? We can all see so clearly the flaws of other people. We all have this in us, right? This capacity to look at other people and be like, you should have done this, right? You should be like that. So principal struggle says there's a principle that I'm fighting for that I believe we're fighting for, and we're going to engage. The other piece of principal struggle that feels really important is we ask questions before we issue our critique. So it's not that you never get to issue a critique. And if you love issuing critique, it's coming. Don't worry, right? But that we ask these questions, or I, on the internet now, I say read the text first, because so often people like read the headline, and they're like, this is exactly what I'm talking about. I'm so, and I'm like, wait, did you read? You didn't even look, 
you have to click through, right? Because the headline is not necessarily the piece. And a lot of times the headline isn't even what the writer, like the writers often don't create the headlines for their pieces. So I'm like, click through, read the text, or in person, ask the question. It sounds like you just said something really racist. Can we talk about that, right? I want to engage you in it. I want to have a conversation, make sure I understand. Now, if it is racist, then I get to move into critique. Yay, right? But <laughs> sometimes it's like, oh, a person had no idea what they just said, right? They need to learn, and you're going to teach them. Yeah? The third thing is connected to that, transform yourself to transform the world. I learned this from Grace Lee Boggs, who I had the honor of being mentored by in Detroit. She was a Chinese-American activist, married into the Black Power Movement, and just did incredible work. She has books that you should read. She has an autobiography called, autobiography called Living for Change, and her latest book was The Next American Revolution. And she passed away two years ago after reaching 100 years and 100 days old. And she's very much a part of the lineage of this work. One of the things she taught us was transform yourself to transform the world. And I remember when I first heard this, I was like, ah, it can't happen at an individual level. Like, that doesn't matter. But then when I understood what she was saying, that each of us is carrying, like, the parts of this harm inside of us. I'm an anti-capitalist who's walking around with a shopping problem, right? Like, when I get really sad, I need to go on ASOS and buy myself a new skirt. And... I'm like, that's not helping me be less sad. What is happening here? What do I need to transform to make myself feel abundance in my life without having to consume, right? That's one thing. I could tell you 50 more things. I'm so contradictory. And I'm working on all of them. And I'm trying to see all of them. How do I transform myself? When we're trying to think about doing this work out in the world, again, it's so easy to point the fingers. And it's so much harder to say, how do I shift this in myself and begin to embody something so compelling, it's irresistible, yeah? So that when someone meets me, I don't have to critique them. I just have to embody something that's liberated and free and whole, yeah? What does that actually look like to practice? Those three things I have found in most mediations will get us through. If we can engage the tension, be in principle struggle, and then be willing to self-transform and commit to self-transforming, that will get people through. If people are not down to do that, they're not actually wanting, they're just like, they want to seem to have done the right thing. We have to stop seeming to do the right thing if we're going to survive, I think, as a species. All of our seeming to do stuff is like plastic, and we need to be back to the dirt. Does that make sense? So I'm going to ask you all now to be thinking about a few things, and I want you to think about them with others. So we're going to do a little playing with each other. A lot of times when we come to these conferences, we're trying to sit down with someone and basically make an impression that includes like our resume, our entire history as a human being, everything we're smart and good at, the major questions of our lives, and whether we're available for dating, like all in the first two minutes or so of the interaction. And I want to let all that fall away. And I'm just going to make it awkward for a few minutes. So. I'm going to ask you to give this person your attention. So the first feelings you might have are just like awkward, I want to laugh, or I want to talk. And what I want to ask you to do is see if you can drop under that. And what I want you to do is just this person doesn't have to prove anything to you. They don't have to earn your respect. They already have it. Just resting into the fact that out of all the things this person could be doing in the world, they have chosen intentionally to try to reduce the harm that our species causes to each other. 
They have chosen to try to increase the transformation, the safety, and the love that exists in the world. Right? They're doing this not just for themselves, because they could. They could just be like, I'm going to go sit on a beach somewhere, and I'm just going to feel the love for myself forever. But they chose to come to a cold place, right, and sit in a room full of other people, some of whom they don't know, and just get present. Get present and be grateful for this person. And understand, like, oh, they've got this whole life behind them. First of all, billions of years of DNA went into creating this perfect person, this miraculous being whose heart is beating, whose lungs are functioning, who loves people and who is loved by people. All of that is true. Even if they don't tell you the stories of all of it, that's already true. This is just this divine being and a shape changer. This person has changed and changed and changed in ways you cannot imagine. They were one month old once, right? Somebody had to love them past that. Somebody fed them. Somebody, they were the most precious thing in the world to somebody. Someone helped them learn to say hello, to say I love you. And at a certain point, they started finding a path. And that path led them to you right now. So you can, right, always choose the level at which you're going to engage this person. Like, am I going to be a real person right now? I can. Or I can put on whatever my projection is and try to impress. So you get a choice. Choose your own adventure. And what I want you to try here is choosing yourself, like choosing full acceptance. Like, I am, I am good as I am. Like, I'm trying to create change, but I'm also, I'm really good right now. And what I'm doing is important right now. I'm proud of it, and I want to share it, right? That's the energy I want to invite you into with each other. And this is going beyond the random circumstances of your birth. So you guys, I totally, I think it's totally fine to kind of look at each other and be like, here's some assumptions I might be making about you, right, based on what I'm seeing on the external. Your hair is a certain way. You're wearing a certain hat. But then there's also just the random circumstances of your birth which is how I speak about how we get gendered, how our abilities get measured, what race and sex constructs set us up for, how have we found ourselves along the journey of that. Because we don't choose which bodies we come out of, but the bodies we come out of set up so much about how we're going to be and who we get to be in the world. So also seeing, can you let the assumptions fall away and be like, I don't actually know about this person's life yet, no matter what I think. And I want you to share with each other, here's how I've been choosing myself, and here's how I've been choosing my people. Here's how I've been choosing all of me, and here's how I've been choosing my people. Got it? Everybody got it? All right, I'm going to time you. You're going to get two minutes each way. So the questions are, here's how I have been choosing all of myself, and here's how I've been choosing all of my people. And that might be like, here's the work I've been doing to do that. That might be like, I've been meditating every morning and taking long baths. The full range. Show how you're already choosing yourself. Got it? All right, two minutes. 
Here's the other piece that I'm going to ask you all to share with each other, and this one is going to be a little bit more free-ranging. I'm going to give you five minutes to just share between the two of you, and here's what I want you to talk about. What are the toxic systems that I'm trying to relinquish or eliminate in my own life, and how is that going to shape how I show up for this conference? Right? What are the toxic systems I'm trying to relinquish or eradicate in my own life, and how is that going to show up in how I am at this conference? Got it? Yeah? So just as an example, it could look like I'm trying to undo patriarchy. So when I'm facilitating spaces in the system, I'm going to make sure to hold a real balance and have leadership from the women of center voices in the room. That might be a practice that you're reading, or it might be something else. Right? Everyone understand the question? Yeah? Okay. And these are the kind of conversations I want people to get more and more into more quickly in a relationship, right? It's like, hi, my name is Adrian. I'm here to heal the legacy of sexual trauma and racism in my lifetime. What are you about? <laughs> and like recognizing a lifetime is a long time and you don't know how long you get. I've had, um, this has been a season of devastation. So many people have died unexpectedly in the past few months and I have been grieving and supporting the grief processes of others. And also one of the things I'm noticing as I watch people fly away, flock into ancestor land, is it matters to me how people felt about how they were doing in their lives, right? Like I notice if people left and I was like, they did what they came to do. They were proud of what they were doing. They were feeling satisfied by it and in the right work. I can release them more easily. I'm like, they came and they did what they needed to do. And then if I, I'm like, oh, that person was almost there or they wanted to do this other justice thing and they just didn't quite get over there, it makes me grieve so much harder. And so it's something I want to constantly be an invitation to also is like, don't waste any time. Do not waste any time. Justice is right this moment, available all the time to you and how you personally practice. And then what you personally practice generates what a community can collectively practice. Right? So to close us out, I just want to say three things. One is that we all have the right to take up space. I think sometimes as we're trying to shift the narratives of harm, we start to think we need to shrink ourselves and shrink away from our wholeness in order to not cause impact. And I actually think the opposite is the case. We need to really impact each other a lot with the reality of who we are, with how we are, right? So I want to invite you all to take up all the space that is yours. Not more than that, right? But definitely not less than that. We need people who are committed to justice to occupy their fullness. Right? The second thing, we are tasked by an amazing writer named Tony Cade Bambara with making the revolution irresistible. So I really think about this question all the time, is how can we find the pleasure in our togetherness, the pleasure in our connection? The next book I'm working on is called Pleasure Activism, and it's about how do we make pleasure, how to make justice the most pleasurable experience we can have, right? And I really mean that. I'm like, oh, how do we enjoy this instead of horrible meetings where we all sit there wishing something else was happening and we're wasting our time, and it's just like, exact, that was exactly it right there. That, right? How do we avoid that? How do we deepen into like, oh, I'm really glad to be here. I like the people I work with. I like the work that we're up to. Um, I believe that we're doing it the right way, and I'm, I'm enjoying my days, right? Like, don't waste your entire work day for your life. You're going to be working a lot. Those are your most of your waking hours. Find something that actually nourishes you and is a pleasure to you and brings justice to the world. Yeah? And then the third thing 
is get to it now, right? Get to it now. Go talk to your families. Go talk to your loved ones. Let everybody know this is what I'm about, and I'm doing it today, yeah? It's not a plan that's going to happen down the line or down the road. I think a lot of people are like, oh, and if we just get this, and then in 2020, then we'll do this. Right now, today, there's no time to waste. So that's my talking part. I thought we could do some Q and A, but mostly like A and A or T and A, which means in my context, <laughs> that's not what I meant, but it means thoughts, thoughts and answers, right? So what it means is if you have thoughts, reflections, questions, anything that you would like to say now in front of the room, this is the time for it. And then if it's something that you have that you want me to answer, I can also answer. Hi. Hi. Um, so happy that you're here. My question slash thought is, so you talk in emergent strategy about flocking to the ball. Um, what are some tips that you have um, for a community that maybe is small and stretched really thin and, you know, people are often working towards multiple causes for multiple organizations all yeah. the time? What's your advice about determining where the ball is <laughs> when we talk about, you know, like flocking to a point? Oh, of, yeah. yeah. Like, would your advice be for helping, you know, a group like that determine consensus on where the point of the most, you know, like tension that needs to be engaged is? Yeah, I don't necessarily think that people do, right? They don't always need to find one purpose or one point in a group. I think sometimes people, like I would ask people instead, why are you coming together? What do we need from this togetherness? Because sometimes it's like, oh, we're all working on different things and we want to keep doing that. So I just was at a group of black healers. We went off to Hawaii. One of them was like, I live in Hawaii. Do you guys want to come here? And we're all black healers who are all doing very different work. You know, I'm like, I do organizational healing and someone's doing body work and all this different stuff. And we're like, we don't need to all get on the same path, but we all do need sacred venting space, right? We need some space where we can come together and just release valve the things that we can't say in most spaces. And we came together, we started doing that, and then all these brilliant solutions and alternative actions and all this stuff started flowing forward. And it was like, oh, this is what we actually needed the togetherness for. So I often ask that question. It's like, why is the group coming together? If it's a group that's like, oh, we're a small group of people in a small town, I think there's something about where can we have the most impact, right? So I often ask people, and looking at a few different levels, like there's legislative impact, which I'm not a huge believer in, <laughs> right? I, I'm like, I would much rather see practice that moves up into being legislated rather than legislation that we fight for and then hope it's going to trickle down into practice. I very rarely see it go that way. Usually it's flowing up. You know, I think of gay marriage as an interesting one where it's like gay people were already being committed to each other, coming out very publicly about it, moving into the culture of television and other spaces where people were it was getting normalized. And then finally some legislation comes through that's like, oh, and also, you know, the state will acknowledge this in some places or whatever. But I was like, by that point, for me, I was kind of like, you don't dictate whether I love or don't love or commit or don't commit. Like those practices were already happening and growing upward. Yeah. So I think about that in the community too, is like, are there things that we want to turn up and grow upward? But I think sometimes communities, you know, truncate what they are capable of because they try to get a singular agenda point or a singular thing too early in the process. That piece and moving at the speed of trust is a big part of emergent strategy. And usually, if a group has developed enough trust and people are moving at the speed of trust, it becomes clear where the focal point needs to be 
And people can make moves then of being like, oh, I'm going to sacrifice a little bit of the time I'm doing on my thing because your thing is more important and you need it. But that only comes through trust, and that takes time. I often will tell people, make a study group or something together where you're reading things and developing some shared analysis and some shared sense of the world. But there's a quote that I love that I keep saying all the time, and I think it's in the book. It's Loretta Ross, and it's a group of people thinking the same thing and moving in the same direction is a cult but a group of people thinking different things and moving in the same direction is a movement. And I think that's the piece is like, how do we first start to come together and share the different things we're thinking of and then trust, let the trust be the thing that guides us in the, what is the direction that can emerge out of that? Yeah. Also playing with Venn diagrams, like drawing some Venn diagrams will really help. It's like, what are the overlapping points? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's a good question. All right. Anyone else? Hi. Thank you very much. Um, your last point, get to it now. Yes. Um, we live upstate in the other part of the state. Okay. In uh, the, <laughs> the north. And when there's feels like we're overwhelmed with so much that needs to be done on yes. so many various levels. Yes. And we're, it feels like in constant motion yes. and doing it and doing it. Yeah. Um, and sometimes treading water. Yeah. Um, how do we know? How, how can we really assess, besides coming together like this and with our own community, um, what to get to now That's when so everything good. feels like it needs to be gotten to? That's so good. Um, this is one of my favorite things for organizers. One, two things jump to mind. One is learning to say no, right, and learning to feel no, more importantly. So, again, this piece around being polite and not wanting to cause harm to people often leads us to say yeses that are not true yeses, right? Like, I just had this experience the other day where someone called me. They're like, this person who's in our community is having a, a breakdown, and we need you to help. And I had just spent the week doing grief support for someone else that I love, and I was like, I really don't have it to give. And I have overridden that feeling for so long that usually when I have that feeling, I'm just like, just push through. You know, this person needs you, and it activates my hero tendencies. It activates my I can save the world, I can save this person. All this stuff taps in. And instead I was like, you know, I don't think I have it to give. Right? I, I just have nothing left. Like I have emptied the well. I need to refill the well, right? But I felt the no, and I actually let the no come out through my mouth. <laughs> and, um, and it's awkward. I still fumble with no. Like, I'm really good at yes. I'm like, yes, yes. Even when I'm like, you know, I will say an enthusiastic yes sometimes. And I'm like, oh, you know, inside. So I think that no often says where your energy is actually flowing. And I think the best work happens when your energy is flowing in a yes way towards the work that's being asked. And that yes might come from... I'm capable of doing this. I can see that there's a clear way I can have impact. We do so much work on things where we know we're not going to have any impact, but it just feels like the right thing to do. We're listening to Adrienne Marie Brown. Adrienne Marie Brown is an activist, organizer, and the author of a wonderful book on social activism titled Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change and Changing Worlds. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. We do so much work on things where we know we're not going to have any impact. 
but it just feels like the right thing to do. And I feel like that's wasted energy. As opposed to, often, I can have impact because I am impacted by this. You know, I think a lot of times when people are doing like ally work, I'm like, what actually are you impacted by and what are you actually impacting that moves you from ally into solidarity realm, right? Into like, oh, I actually am like, I'm a part of causing this harm and let me figure out how I undo it. Or I'm directly impacted by this harm and I need to undo it rather than there's right and wrong and I need to do all the things that are on the side of right and stop all the things on the side of wrong. So that first one is feeling your no, having a really clear sense of what makes sense based on your circumstances to get involved in. And then I think making sure that there's a sense of longevity. So it's like we're in a long arc that is going to continue. It started long before we came onto this planet. It's going to continue hopefully long after. And so letting go of the ego that feeds urgency, that says, oh, right now in my lifetime, we have to do all these things. It's like, you know, it's like I think about, again, slaves in the middle of slavery when slavery was all they had known and all that there there was going to be for three or four generations still to come, those people didn't stop fighting. They didn't stop slipping poison to master's food or teaching their kids to read or trying to escape, right? All of that was useful, necessary action that they were figuring out. I think of us sometimes in that, where I'm like, we don't know where we are. Grace always asks us, what time is it on the clock of the universe? Like, get in touch with where we are in that larger arc. And usually, when you sort of look at it, like, oh, like in Detroit, there's so many things we could work on. But water has continuously been one that we all keep kind of coming back to or organizing and centering ourselves around. It's like, of all the many, many things, water touches into all of them. It's finding, like, what is that thing that touches into everything and is the right time for the universe of the place where you are. Does that make sense? Yeah. But say no. Can we all practice that right now? It's just no. No. I can't right now. You know, I'm too tired. Right? No is a complete sentence. No doesn't need like a further explanation actually. Right? It's just not a yes. And learning to hear no, I just want to say that too, like learning to hear from other people. So just all look at someone else and say no and hear it. No. Right? No. Yeah? I'm just such a huge fan of this because if you imagine that, you guys are loving it. Yeah? No makes way for yes. No makes way for authenticity. Yeah? Good. Yes. Um, I'm Cleo. I go to Sage International. We're the high schoolers here. Uh-oh. Okay, y'all are rolling real deep right now. Uh, yeah, we're doing Hi, well. all of you. <laughs> okay, and I just wanted to say, so I'm 17, and I'm a Aww. feminist and, awesome. and trying to enact change, okay. but it's hard because I'm a human and not a yeah. magic fairy with a wand. And, okay. Yeah. Um, so I'm working on speaking my mind and stuff and finding an equalizer for all humans. And I've realized mm. today, just by staring into my stranger's soul, yes. um, that <laughs> everybody is just a human. And we're all going to live and we're all going to die. And we're all at that same stage in our life where we're trying to figure out what to do next, which I thought was kind of only a teenager thing because I'm 17 and I have no idea what I would do with my Honey, life. I'm 39. Um, we don't yeah. figure it out. Yeah, I realize like we're not going to figure it out and it's going to be fine. Yeah, I mean the thing I often say is that humans are trash and humans are miraculous. And both of those things are always true, right? That we are the best and worst of times for ourselves and each other. And my mom and I were just talking about this. She's 61, 62. 
I think she's about to turn 62. And she's like, yeah, I still feel like, I don't, I don't know, I'm still figuring stuff out. And I was like, me too. I thought that by now it would be like, ah. And there's some stuff I definitely have figured out about, like, dating and and still not, we were just, I mean, like, not the good things. <laughs> I'm just like, I have figured out some of the things to avoid. Um, or, you know, being myself without apology often is awkward and bumpy and requires, like, you know, messiness. But for the most part, I'm still kind of like, if I look up at the stars or if I look up at the large scale of harm in the world, I get overwhelmed still. And I'm like, I don't know if this is going to make a difference. But fractal, if I notice one other person and really tune in, I'm just like, oh, you're just of my species and we're just figuring this out. It's going to be a long time figuring it out. And I'll say this, I'm not a fan of heaven or utopias. I don't want to stop figuring it out. Like I don't want to be sitting on a cloud playing a lute for eternity. I'm just like, I like problem solving. I like getting in and, and figuring things out and co-creating and being messy. And like I want to keep doing that. So it's, it's once you start to tune in to like, oh, I'm shaping change, it all gets really interesting. I can say that. It doesn't get clearer, but it does get more fun. Yeah, enjoy the rest of your life. <laughs> Thank you. You too. <laughs> awesome. I just have one comment to make. When yes. this morning we had a very well-known female politician being derogatory by our, uh -huh. I guess you'd say, our leader of our country, making a joke because of her Native American lineage. Oh, wow. And then everyone saying, oh, it's not racism, it's nothing. So no one's saying no. No. Exactly. No one raising a voice to say, hey, that's wrong. This, and with all the, which is good, the uh, sexual harassment coming to light, but yet ignoring, na you know, yeah. the S word names that we still want to say, well, that's our tradition. Yep. And that is, to me, the disgusting that promote racism ongoing. Yeah. So that's just one comment. Absolutely. That right? I think if we don't like it, we need to say no, enough exactly. is enough. Right? Like, this is what I mean by that letting go of being polite in those moments. You know, I wrote this thing heading into the holidays because I think the holidays, you know, are this time when, like, all the stuff kind of comes to the surface. Like, my family caused me harm. I love my family. I don't want to participate in this colonial imperialist celebration. This is the only week my family has off. I have to confront them on all of their racism and sexism. I'm tired. This is supposed to be my break, you know? Everything is like coming together. And so I was saying to people, like, how to, what's the holiday how to? Right? Like, how do we move through and actually disrupt the things that need to be disrupted? So I came up with this little quick formula, which I put on the internet Be kind, speak from the heart, be principled, look back through time to the wound and forward to the medicine. You know, time is a circle, right? It's all there together. Ask curious questions when you feel an assumption coming. Listen to the answers with a soft face. Only interrupt ignorance. Stay connected. Stay wide. Look for the best and invite it to be brighter. Be an irresistible invitation to the future. Yeah. And I think that piece around, like, interrupting ignorance is maybe the number one skill set we need to learn how to do, right? It's just to be like, no. And I think that's how we have the president we have right now, is that so many people are like, oh, uh, uh. like, that's a person who got too many passes, right? That's the only way you get to be an adult man who behaves this way. So it's like, how do we intervene 
And I never plan to talk to him, but there's a lot of men I meet that have those tendencies, and I interrupt them. And I'm starting to interrupt men who stop me on the street or try to talk to me. You know, or someone's like, hey, you look really beautiful. And it's like, no, I think I just look like I'm trying to spend some time by myself with my headphones on going for a walk, you know? And it's just interesting to be like, oh, how do I interrupt those things in a way that, for me, will often employ humor, but also, you know, keeps my safety intact. But also, it's like, no, I have the right to take up space here, and your racism doesn't, right? I also want to make this distinction is pulling apart behavior from person. And I think, I keep saying this, I'm like, we do trash things, we do harmful things, but we are not the harm ourselves. We are not the wound, right? We are the wounded. And when people are the ones who are creating those wounds, I think they can think they're not the wounded. But the only reason you would do that to others is because you're wounded, right? So we all need medicine, and I think we are each other's medicine. So thank you all so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was Adrienne Marie Brown. And here's more Adrienne Marie Brown. Last summer, I was lucky enough to come across a book called Octavia's Brood, Science Fiction Stories for Social Movements. And it's a collection of original science fiction written by people who are doing social justice work. It's inspired by Octavia Butler, who, uh, if you do not know her work, she's a pioneer like all of these women, whose work offer radical explorations into the nature of power and oppression, and I think is really an instigator for really thinking about social change. I couldn't get the subtitle of the publication out of my head, All Organizing is Science Fiction, and I'm super excited that the co-editor of this book is with me today, Adrienne Marie Brown. Her, along with her other co-editor, Walida Masia, coined the term visionary fiction. And today, Adrienne is going to be presenting her work around visionary fiction. Adrienne is, apart from being an Octavia Butler scholar, she is a doula, a pleasure activist, an organizer, a facilitator of workshops. And so I'm going to hand you over now to Adrienne. Thank Hello. you. Hello. So the first thing I'm going to ask everyone to do is actually stand up for a moment. And we're just going to want to invite Octavia into the room. So Octavia Butler was a black science fiction writer. She wrote 12 novels. She was writing by herself. As far as she knew, there weren't other black science fiction writers, and she wanted there to be a field of science fiction writers who were not white men because we had enough of the world imagined by white men. So she just thought, hey, we could popularize this. So to call her in, put your feet about shoulder width apart, drop your hands to your sides, wiggle your bum if you have a little locked up hip area because we need that pelvic thrust motion, yeah, okay? And then close your eyes and just come into awareness of your own body for a moment. This is your unique, miraculous vessel through space-time, whatever you believe about space-time, your body is just moving through it for a particular moment of it. And how is your body doing today? Are you feeling hyper-miraculous, like a change-maker, well-nourished, well-rested, drunk, whatever, you just notice your own feelings. And we're gonna come into an intentional place where we are ones who make change. 
So Octavia teaches us these words, and you can repeat them back to me as I say them to you. All that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. Now open up your eyes and just look around the room for a moment and just imagine if only the people in this room are responsible for the future. How would that feel to you? Right? What kind of level of responsibility would you want everyone in the room to take for what happens next? Right? So just look around and say, do you feel confident? Do you feel some questions? Right? Just notice it. No judgment. Because right? anything you don't like about someone else is actually about yourself. We'll talk about that another time. So the first thing, all organizing is science fiction. What does that mean? It's a catchy phrase. I come from organizing background. I grew up as a military brat. And when I got politicized in high school, I turned to my father and I was just like, you're a murderer. And he was like, well, I did it to go to college. And that began my relationship with contradictions and politicization and understanding that there's very little that's simple. But there are those of us who look at existing mechanisms, existing world, and we say, I want to change this. I think I could do something better than this. I think a lot of us in this room feel this way. And the idea behind all organizing is science fictional behavior, right, is that you're looking at something and saying, this has never existed. We've never felt a world without war, without hunger, without poverty, where everyone has a garden and a loot and whatever else you think. So whether it's heaven or utopia or something else, we've never experienced this. And we're going to bend the future. We're going to co-create the future to make that happen. So people who are doing that kind of social change work are science fictional, which a lot of them find very uh, rewarding because it's more like you're in the matrix instead of just a constant like class on Marxism. Um, so Walida Imarish and I came together around this idea. I was obsessing over Octavia Butler and I was reading her as an organizer and finding that I was more inspired by the ideas in those books than I was by anything I was learning in my political realm. And so I kept trying to sneak the ideas over. And finally I realized I had to come out of the closet and say that I was taking a science fiction seriously for my political development. And I wanted to see if anyone else was doing the same thing. And Walida was doing the same thing. She was talking about visionary fiction. So we came together and we crafted this idea of visionary fiction. And the idea behind it is that art is not neutral, right? Art is not neutral. You're either advancing justice and liberation and a higher evolution of humanity, or you are perpetuating a status quo. And what we found was that most fiction, even science fiction that's supposed to be super out there in the future, was perpetuating the same tropes. The same people got to be the heroes. The same dynamics always played out. We also realized that the more people who co-create the future, right, the future is collective is my title, the more people who co-create something, the more people who find themselves feeling at home and safe inside of it. So right now, we are all living inside the imagination of someone else, right? Someone else imagined this power structure wherein white people were superior, wherein men were superior, wherein straight people were superior, wherein whatever served that person was superior. And we live inside of that, and we struggle and try to say, no, I'm, I'm equal. Like, the fact that I even have to argue with that is ridiculous, or any, any of these other concepts. But when we get into community work and community organizing, we see that when people start to co-create a concept or a community or their block together, 
they feel at home, they feel safe there. So what does it look like to actually create fiction from that place in a collective way, to have people collaboratively ideate what are the worlds we want, and not utopian or dystopian. So we really want to move away from that because as we know living in this world, utopia and dystopia coexist, right? So what Octavia's Brood holds is 20 stories from people who are shaping change in the world, including one from me, which is about Detroit and gentrification. And in my story, the Detroit River rises up and sweeps away all the people who don't love the city. So that's the spoiler, but it feels important to mention this because I, typically people don't read me as a very angry or vengeful person. But I loved when uh, the speaker was just talking about hopelessness, right? Because I do think it's important to tap into hopelessness and find a way to let it roll through a community in order to move out. I think if we push it down, grief and hopelessness and all those things just wait for us. And they wait until we're ready and then they overwhelm us, all right? But as a community, we can use art and fiction to release some of these grand emotions so that we have more room for creating for other things. The other things that are in there are two essays, one from Tanana Reeve Du, who's a horror writer who you should all read her work. It's incredible. D-U-E is the last name. The other is from a prisoner named Mumia Abu-Jamal, who has been on death row, has come off of death row. He's in prison in Pennsylvania. But we also felt it was important that we understand what does the future look like and what is the analysis of someone who's been living their whole life behind bars, discarded by our society, quote unquote. And he writes about American imperialism and the movie Star Wars and how nifty and cute it is that people in America thought that they were the rebels when actually they're empire, right? And how that's actually often the case, that people think they're being so rebellious when actually they're upholding empire, they're upholding the status quo. So we made a lot of workshops to go with this because we realized we didn't want to just create a product that people came and they get the product and they go because that just perpetuates the same thing that we don't want to do. So one of those workshops is a collective science fiction writing workshop where people come together, we imagine the world, uh, you know, we pick an issue, so it might be water. In Detroit, water is a major area where you're in battle right now. We pick the issue, and together everyone co-creates what is it that would actually be realistic solutions, and then what would be the new problems that we would face in that, in that scenario, and how do we use writing and creating together to move through all those realms. The thing that's been very fascinating to me is when we approached the writers for the book, they were organizers, and they all laughed at us. Most of them laughed in our face. They're like, I don't write science fiction. I don't write fiction. I never saw Star Trek. I don't do that thing with my hand. I don't know what you're talking about. And we said, please just give us 10 pages because we think you're changing the world. You're unique. And almost all of them came back, and they were like, I have 50 pages. My characters come to me when I'm in the kitchen, you know, and they tell me what they want me to write. And it was just like this amazing, dramatic turnaround. And so the theory we tested then in the workshops was that actually everyone has universes and worlds inside of them, but they don't have permission to release that, right? And what does it look like to give people permission? And actually, for a lot of people who've been oppressed, getting permission in a collective environment is a first step towards getting permission to do it on your own, right? First we do it together, and then we all realize, oh, we can all do this. There's enough room, actually. There's multiverse room. There's room and room and room and rooms upon rooms for all of these creatings, all these worlds. The other thing I said earlier, that we're living in someone's imagination, and right now I think it's important to say that often it's the imagination of someone who hates us but has convinced us that we want to be them. Do you know what I mean? So 
when we were going getting people to start telling their stories, a lot of times they were trying to write themselves into these heroic characters where they were doing things that they've had done to them, like the worst of what's been done to them, right? And I say this is important because we see this play out in the world over and over again. In the U.S., this has played out over and over again. In Detroit, we have all black people in government, and they've done the same horrible things to us, right? Or we look at Israel-Palestine. We look at these situations where it's like, oh, have you experienced traumatic, horrific oppression? What happens as soon as you gain power? How do you change your behavior? Right? So there's also this case that the singular vision serves the elite, right? One vision serves 1% of all the people in the world. And in that vision, if you're, if you're constantly buying into that elite vision, there's no room for memory because if you can remember what trauma has been done to you, you won't buy in and completely become a good consumer of what's happening now, right? So it's an important thing to pay attention when you look at all the beauty. It's like, well, what was erased in order to create room for that beauty? Who was erased often to create room for that beauty? Um, are you interested in pleasure activism? Yes? So one of the things I talk about a lot is that I want justice and freedom to actually be the most pleasurable experiences humans can have. And right now it's kind of like, oh, we have to slow down and have a horrific consensus process so that everyone can tell their truth and reconciliation. And well, It's not very fun to actually engage in justice. But uh, Tony K. Bambara talks about this, that the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. And so this is something I always task people with, especially those who consider themselves creators, is how do you actually make it a pleasurable thing for people to engage in their own liberation? And then that means that people have to be able to feel, right? So that's why I asked you to stand up and be in your body before we started. Because here, pleasure doesn't all live right here, right? It's not all in your mind, at least not yet. We still have bodies, and we can still engage them. But we all live in societies that have repressed and repressed and repressed our feeling selves. And art is actually one of the ways we awaken our feeling selves. You have a visceral reaction to something. I'm trying to say, how do we get people to have a visceral reaction to things that are actually in their best interest and actually good for them? So in the U.S., I've done a lot of sex education because people are taught horrific things about sex. And it's not until you're like 35 and you realize, like, oh, sex should be just pleasurable for me, and it's not all about your penis. That's amazing. Or whatever it is. You know, it's just a long time coming till you figure out, oh, what is pleasure for me? And how do we get people to, as early as possible in their life, start to to learn that pleasure is actually a great thing and not something to be punished or quieted down. And Audre Lorde, have you heard of Audre Lorde, anyone? Audre Lorde has this amazing essay called The Uses of the Erotic. She talks about how if you can awaken your ability to feel anything, it'll change how you feel everything. And if you can awaken pleasure, you'll no longer settle for suffering, right? That's pleasure activism in a nutshell. Is like, what would it look like if all of our communities were completely awakened to pleasure? And that then we organized ourselves around what we wanted to say yes to in the world rather than what we want to say no to. Right now, it's always, we don't want more of this. It's absolutely fucking no, 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 right? But that actually doesn't inspire people very much, right? Most people, they're like, I know. How many things can I sign up to say no to? How many times can I donate to say no to this? But actually, people then eventually back away from that and they turn towards what's pleasing to them. Their lovers, their partners, their children, other things. So how do we actually bring those two things together? I think that's all I'm going to say. So we're going to stand again, and this time I'm going to have you turn and face someone who you don't already know. You didn't come here with this person. And don't run away if you're terrified of other people. Just notice that terror. And don't say anything. Just shut up. Just be totally quiet. Totally quiet. So 
This is going to be awkward, only for like two minutes, and then I'll let you go. So just notice first thing, if you're able to stand face-to-face with this person, which means your forehead and your heart and your gut and your toes would line up with this person. And then second, notice the connection between the two of you. Do you have yourself, are you crossing your arms, are your hands in your pockets, are you doing anything else that's kind of a blocking move? Right? Just relax your shoulders, let your arms drop to the side, and just be in your body. And just, these are the ways you signal to someone, oh, you're not a danger to me in this moment, and I'm not a danger to you in this moment, so I'll let my shoulders kind of relax. You guys are adjusting so beautifully, it's amazing. Really tune into this person in front of you. Notice how fantastic their humanity looks to you. Right? This is a miraculous creature. You could never recreate this person. They have a whole life of experience. So just imagine the years spilling out behind them that you don't know about. Think about what they've survived. Think about what they've already created. And I want you to extend to this person that their life is worthwhile. That their life is worthwhile. Just their existence is worthwhile. And even miraculous, if you can permit that. That you are looking at an element of the divine. And here's the more awkward part, that you are being seen as an element of the divine, right? A creator, a creator, and a co-creator of the future. And that this person might be relying on you for the future they need. Just consider it, right? Now, again, notice your body. Are you tensing up? Are you nervous? Are you giggling? Are you crying? Are you looking away? Allow yourself to open a little more to this person. And one way to do that is to think that there's a little nexus, a little line between your heart and this person's heart. Okay, you can do this with your eyes open or closed, whichever is more comfortable. But there's a connection. And this is not me, this is science. Barbara Smith teaches us that the heart creates a vibration 10 feet around our bodies in every direction, strongest directly in front of us. So you're in this person's vibrational field and they're in yours. And there's a little channel between your hearts. And just imagine what you would need to do to fully clear it. To fully clear it. To totally forgive this person anything they've ever done wrong. To totally be forgiven. To totally release the stereotypes that you've been taught about this person. And to let yourself be seen without the stereotypes they've been taught of you. And then imagine how clear it would have to be to co-create with this person a future where both of you could exist. Yeah. Now take a moment, just share one thing, one thing that you are excited that you have already created in this world. One thing that you're excited you've already created in this world. And now just thank your partner. Thank them in whatever way you want to, whatever way feels good to you, right? So the person you just spent that time with, they might become your lifelong friend or your lifelong collaborator. You may never see them again, right? You may never see them again. The more likely thing is you, you might never see each other again. That's what normally what happens for humans, especially in an environment like this. It's like we run into each other, we fall in love a little bit, and then we keep moving on with life. So a good release is important, right? So I wish you well is always a really beautiful way to say so that, in a nutshell, is what emergent strategy is all about, is just doing something that is an emergent thing, trusting that the universe means for us to connect with each other. Our bodies 
are, we're the only creatures that are upright with everything vulnerable in us exposed like this. I think it's for a reason. I think we are meant to face each other, to connect with each other, and to see each other as co-creators of the future. So I invite you to co-create the future with me. I hope you all read the book. It's beautiful, beautiful stories. And I'll see you some other day. was Adrienne Marie Brown. Adrienne Marie Brown is an activist, organizer, workshop facilitator, and the author of a wonderful book on social activism titled Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change and Changing Worlds. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, have a wonderful week. Music